Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. Also, from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to save the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. First-generation Lebanese, Gary Paul Nabhan is an agricultural ecologist, an ethnobotanist, and an ecumenical Franciscan brother gardening and living in Patagonia, Arizona. He's the author of a host of books covering a diversity of botany-based topics, from pollinators to food policy to love letters to his favorite landscapes and the charismatic plants of those landscapes. The heart of his work is fed by his own lifelong enchantment with the world and his nearly lifelong commitment to healing wounded landscapes from a primary objective of consciously conserving healthy relationships on all levels and planes. In all that he does, Gary examines our human relationships to plants and places, not just as a matter of important pragmatics, but as a matter of spirit and poetics. I cannot think of a better time of year to share forward that exact kind of enchantment and hopeful growing work. Gary, as a multi-decade reader and student of yours, I am so honored to speak with you today in this time of year and at this moment in our world. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you, and I'm a fan of yours as well. So I really want to start by having you describe for listeners what your current mission statement might be for your own relationships to plants. Well, I would say that it's the conscious conservation of ecological interactions between our own kind, the humankind, and plant diversity, microbial diversity cultural diversity, and our spiritual connections to plants. That uh, at one level, I love the materialistic and sensory pleasures of working with plants every day. It's something that I do as a spiritual practice, though, as well. That getting out of our own skin and into the epidermis of uh, the plant kind brings us into contact more fully with the entire world. Yes, and there's a lot in there already for us to begin unpacking. Before I ask you to take us back a little bit and start weaving our way along your path to date, will you describe for listeners what you mean, what the world means when we use a term like agricultural ecologist, which is also sometimes described as an economic ecologist I've seen you described as, um, combined with ethnobotanist, combined with an ecumenical Franciscan brother. So maybe break those down into their three component parts first before you marry them. 
Yeah, well, again, I'm afraid I have too many labels <laughs> that are attached to me, and I'd like to shed all of them. I think I began as an ethnobotanist because I was in love with the relationship between indigenous and ethnic cultures and their uses of plants in every possible way, from food and medicine to ceremony and ritual. At the same time, I cared deeply about people in need, the poorest of the poor among us, who really need direct connections with plants to keep themselves fed and healthy. And so that's where the economic botany part comes in. Some of us call ourselves uneconomic botanists <laughs> because we're not out to make a buck, but we're out to make sure that our economy takes into account more than just the bottom line. At another level, I call myself an agrarian ecologist because I'm constantly working to bring the wild world into our cultivated landscapes to keep it from becoming monoculture. And so in that sense, I'm interested in ecological restoration or what Robin Kimmer calls reciprocal restoration, that as we work to heal landscapes by planting trees or wildflowers or plants for pollinators, we're in some ways healing ourselves by renewing our connections with beneficial microbes and the beneficial fragrances of plants that are all around us all the time that we tend to ignore. Yeah. And finally, the ecumenical Franciscan brother. Describe what that means for people in, in the way that it manifests in your life. Well, I've taken my vows as a Franciscan brother uh, to follow the wayward, pathless path of St. Francis of Assisi, who, of course, was in love with the natural world and spent most of his time outside beyond the domain of institutions, including monasteries and the Catholic bureaucracy, to really connect both with the poorest of the poor in our own species and in other species as well. So when I took my vows, many of my colleagues work in hospitals or elderly care centers as their volunteer vocation. And I chose to work on ecological restoration of wounded landscapes. Mm. And so I really feel that I'm an ecumenical interfaith, or what should I say, uh, across species Franciscan. Mm. Uh, St. Francis once said, uh, go out and preach the good news and only when necessary use words. <laughs> so it's our actions as Franciscans account far more than our words. Okay, now we have a little bit of context for people. All of those labels from being a pioneer in the local food movement to being a, an agrarian ecologist, a, a man of faith that you are, they all come back to a, a certain love of rebuilding healthy interrelationships across all planes. 
Before we get deeper into that and the arc of your career, I would love to have you take listeners back. Who were the influential people and plants and places that grew you into a human for whom these would be important values to advocate for and model in our world? And, and maybe start with where you were born and raised and the, the people around you that grew you. My earliest recollection is sitting at dusk on the top of a dune in the Indiana dunes in our backyard, overlooking a marshland full of dragonflies and waterfowl, and listening to a blue jay or blue jays communicating with me. I felt the world was enchanted and that if I listened well, I could communicate or be communicated to by species other than our own. And I remember my mother calling me at dark and saying, um, uh, GP, because I didn't go by Gary, I went by my initials, GP. GP, it's time to come in, get your butt inside, it's dark. And I said, I can't yet. The birds are still talking to me. It was really that the whole Indiana Dunes were speaking to me. And that sense of enchantment with plants and animals is still what carries me in my heart every day that I was converted to being in love with the entire world, that the spirit of the creator is incarnate in creation, and all we have to do is pay attention to it to feel that exuberance and sacredness all around us. That was also fueled by my grandfather, who had been a farmer in Lebanon before he left as a refugee about 100 years ago. And he was a fruit peddler in the United States. He became landless when he left his homeland, but uh, sold fruit to fishermen. And during the Depression, they forgot about money and they just traded different kinds of fruits for different kinds of fish without any economic transaction. And he told me how to pay attention to fruits when they were ripe, their fragrances, their textures. He He basically took me on as his four-year-old business partner in his fruit <laughs> business and spoke to me as if I were an equal. Mm. And I think all of us who love children love talking to them as equals with their own wisdom that we can learn from aside from what anything we have to offer them. Yeah. So I have to say that nature and the elders of different ethnic cultures have guided me on my way and I feel blessed and grateful for all of those early influences. And so take us from a, a, a young child in community and communing with the life all around him in Indiana to your maybe academic and or physical moves that ultimately get you deeply engaged in food and how food and that system interrelates with, with our cultural workings 
uh, for better or worse? I think I was so enchanted by the world that when I was put in schools, I felt claustrophobic. And uh, I would run away from school whenever I could or hide in school so that I could run outside when the teacher wasn't looking. And I began to play hooky pretty regularly in junior high and never finished high school. And really, nature became my teacher, my scripture, the open book from which I thought I could learn the most. And somehow I, I worked um, my way into college, but after working on railroad crews and road construction crews in the dunes, where I never felt I should aspire to a job inside a building that I was most alive when I was outside. And so even when I got to college on probation without a GED or a high school diploma, within four months, I escaped to work at the first Earth Day headquarters uh, 51 years ago. <laughs> I slept on mailbags or out in parks so that I could work there for three months uh, when I should have been in college. And then after working another stint on road construction in the Indiana Dunes, I had enough money to take a bus back to Earth Day headquarters in Washington, D.C., work there again. And I became enchanted by the diversity in life on this planet, but felt it incredibly endangered. And so after another year in a college in the Midwest that I dearly loved, I wanted to go out west. I, I had backpacked in Utah one time and went out again into the west and did a solo in the Bears Ears area of uh, southern Utah wilderness. And that's when I felt converted to the Franciscan path, even though I started out that solo retreat as a, a practicing Buddhist. Uh, St. Francis came to me and said, you don't have to separate spirit and matter, uh, the earth and uh, joy for creation. Find a way to bring those things together in your path. Mm -hmm. So science and faith, to me, are two sides of a coin. And plant science always brings me back to the wonder and awe that I have in the plant world. I want to say that your involvement in that first Earth Day might have been your first venture into public advocacy. Would that be about right? Almost. I joined my first conservation group when I was 13 or 14. I asked my mother to drive me 15 miles so that I could take my savings and join the Save the Dunes Council hmm. uh, in Chicagoland because I really felt the the Indiana Dunes and the wonderful marshland and, and uh, dune land habitats along Lake Michigan were endangered. And those people, the great conservationists of the Midwest, were what first inspired me. And then when I hit Earth Day headquarters and met people like Gaylord Nelson, and soon after that, Stuart Udall, who uh, was Secretary of Interior, uh, who came, who I invited to speak at an Earth Day rally the following year, I realized that there were great naturalists and environmental prophets all around us. 
that we could listen to, meet, and converse with. And so when I worked at Earth Day headquarters, I was only 17. When I met Stuart Udall, I was barely 18. And their encouragement, the, the people at Earth Day headquarters like Dennis Hayes and Sam Love, who remain among my heroes, really encouraged me that it was possible to go on this pathless path, to try something new and novel in bringing together that love with plants, with uh, uh, science and conservation practice in an unforeseen way. Yeah. And so I never felt like it was pie in the sky stuff because I was in the shadow of these wonderful prophets who just felt that any person on the planet should be encouraged to do this kind of work. Right. And that it didn't matter what class, race, religion, or uh, ethnicity we were from, uh, the earth needed all of us to care for it. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation today with Gary Nabhan, gardener, agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, and ecumenical Franciscan brother. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible through support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the AHS is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy. The joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. Gift memberships and end-of-year donations to the AHS in honor of the gardeners in your life make great offerings for gardeners of all levels, ages, locations, and growing interests. Until December 31st, 2021, listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the American Horticultural Society. For the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. Cultivating Place is also made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. Of the Society's many programs I love, I am so excited to share more about their newest, Bloom California. This campaign aims to increase native plant cultivation, education, appreciation, and sales across the state, transforming our gardens, parks, business fronts, and beyond into native plant habitat spaces. Over 85 nurseries across California have partnered with the CNPS to offer you, California gardeners, Bloom California native plants. Native plants highlight a beauty unique to your region. They support wildlife and are climate conscious. And they are beautiful. Visit bloomcalifornia.org to find a nursery near you and look for Bloom California logos at participating nurseries to discover 
these beautiful native plants that welcome you and the wildlife all around you. And so here we are, full solar and close to full calendar circle. Dark and light, day and night, they are always at play, aren't they? Each offering their own perspective, each showing us another truth. For me in my garden, as we welcome the dormancy of the season, I'm always happy to be reminded of those beings that are actually quickened and enlivened by the chill, by the damp, by the dark. The last of the now straggly summer-fall crops and tender flowers had their hard-killing frost here this past week. They were ready, and I was ready. (laughs) And so the seasons turned a corner fully, blessedly. Blankets of leaves came down in the wind and the rain and the cold. Oak and alder and sycamore leaves now cover the ground in a colorful mosaic, feeding and insulating life below them. Rain and cold seasonal fog fed us all these past few weeks through very different channels than the long and many sunny days of summer. And the mushrooms and the fungi, among others, are delighted. We all, the leaves, the fungi, the fog, enjoyed this past full moon weekend I made the last few wreaths out of prunings and windfall, gray pine, native bay, rosemary, and manzanita for family and friends. John worked on a new fence around the orchard. We are waiting for, all of us, and making welcome for the solstice. Light and dark, they are always at play, each growing us a little differently, for the better. Happy winter and solstice season. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with gardener, botanist, and ecologist Gary Paul Nabhan. As a young adult on a solo backpack trip in southern Utah, Gary was called to a life as a Franciscan, not so much with people as with plants and places. He considered working to become a wildlife biologist, but after learning that he was very colorblind, he began working on mapping the relationships between declines in bird populations and declines in habitat. As we come back, he shares his career path from there. So I started to map interactions and habitats, and very quickly someone told me, you know, Conservation really isn't about saving species from extinction, but most of those species are endangered because of the loss of ecological relationships between pollinator and plant, or seed disperser and plant, or microbe on the root and plant. So that's what I began to focus on, again, thanks to some wonderful mentors, that it was the extinction of ecological interactions, the extinction of relationships that I had to forestall, forego, or halt 
and that my work wasn't being a species by species approach conservationist, but one that focused on uh, conserving or restoring ecological and cultural interactions among all the landscapes that I lived in. And because of my Arab ancestry, I think I fell in love with deserts very, very quickly. Right. That they just spoke to me as something that were elegant and um, sort of spare and yet incredibly rich at the same time. So I became a desert rat by the age of 20 and began writing poems and scientific papers about desert life. And uh, you are currently based uh, outside, uh, not far from Tucson. That's right. I, I have an office at the Desert Laboratory uh, at Tumamak Hill in the middle of Tucson, kind of a central park in the desert where uh, uh, 800-acre desert reserve has been used for the study of uh, plants for over 100 years now. But I live just 18 miles north of the border on a five-acre uh, orchard with a pond, two greenhouses, um, a contemplative garden, and and a lot of restoration plots for agaves to help uh, conserve the 22 species of bats yeah. that we have that come to our pond. So I again, in my daily practice, I'm also very much concerned with those relationships between milkweed and monarch butterfly, between lesser long-nosed bats and century plants, mm. between uh, uh, hummingbird bushes and the 16 species of hummingbirds we have here in Patagonia, Arizona, one of the most diverse places for uh, pollinators anywhere in North America. And I, I'd kind of like to have you um, tug a little bit on each of those threads, this idea of looking at a whole ecology through the lens of one species, but also looking at food, not only for humans, but also for these larger ecologies. The different lenses through which you are trying to get other people to witness this enchantment and the 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 risk of what we are potentially going to lose completely. Thank you for that great uh, reflection, and and I think you caught the gist of my core work. That at some point I knew I was going to be a botanist, but I realized that most people don't even know what a botanist does, and yet everyone eats every day or even when they're fasting, they think about <laughs> plants and foods. <laughs> and so I realized that if I were to get more people to really value our kindred spirits in the plant world, that food was one of the most direct ways that humans interact with the plant world. And that we needed to get people out of their heads into all of their senses. and. Uh, eating and drinking surely does that. But it also is a very gentle way of reminding them of the disparities and inequities in our food system. I just completed a book on mescals and 
other Agave distillates with a dear friend of mine, David Suro, uh, who grew up in Mexico. And we found out that the people who harvest uh, century plants for tequila and mezcal, in harvesting a ton of century plants over a day's time, they might be paid $15 a day for their work. And that is about what a margarita in a high-end restaurant goes, where the bartender makes more in two minutes than the plant harvester makes all day long. And the, they can't even afford the margaritas in that restaurant because they're getting one two hundredth of the value of that final margarita as their daily salary. So those disparities are heartbreaking and they occur in every food or every drink that we imbibe every day. And if we love food, if we love good, healthy drinks, we have to care about the people that bring us our daily bread and our daily wine or the whole thing falls apart. So food is also one of the most direct ways that we can have compassion for the forgotten people, not just in the food sector, but in any uh, human endeavor where the people at either end of the spectrum, the farm worker and the food service worker, or the fisher and the uh, person in the cannery, make less than everyone else in that entire food chain. So you you come to the West, you are um, called not only by St. Francis, but also by the desert and by plants. And you ultimately go on to become a botanist, a, a working botanist, and then ultimately an ecologist. Talk about how the path of your career at that level, um, what shape it took. Well, again, as I mentioned, I knew I had to work outside and working with plants was the, what should I say, the um, low-hanging fruit, so to speak, <laughs> that I love plants and I love working with them. And even though it was hard labor, I'd rather do something with my hands and my heart than um, uh, just with my mind. But at the same time, I'd always been writing and drawing since I was a little kid. I had trouble speaking uh, both because of a lisp and a stutter. And so I spent a lot of time drawing and then uh, writing poetry. And when I began to have to make a living for myself, the writing and the botany were two separate things. And my mentors really discouraged me from keeping up the writing and art even though at one point I wanted to be a botanical illustrator. And they said, just master your science. That art stuff really isn't an asset if you're going to be a good scientist. And then at a certain point, those two parts of me fell together again. And I just saw this more non-dualistic way of being in the world where art and science are kindred spirits rather than antagonistic to one another. And so I guess by the age of 30, when I wrote 
desert smells like rain. I was trying to weave those elements together again. And within three more years after that, even though I'd never spoken in public, I, I got a letter saying that I'd won the John Burroughs Medal for Nature Writing, and I had to go give a talk at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And it froze me I, to, to think that I became a writer and artist, and somehow that would force me to have to talk to people uh, at a podium rather than dialogue with them in informal settings scared me to death. <laughs> and so I, I, it really made me dive into the plant work when I got back home even more, because again, I hate to say it, but sometimes I feel more comfortable conversing with plants than I do with other humans. That first book, The Desert Smells Like Rain, starts to bring together a lot of the lines of inquiry that you will then follow um, from the 1980s until now. Um, and those are the overlaps between indigenous people and places and, and the plants and landscapes that they, they live in and what's happening to to all of them, the people and the land as a result of changing times. So you, uh, you, you dive in deeper to your plant work after this. Where does that take you? Well, it took me very quickly into being the head of conservation and collections at the Desert Botanical Garden in Phoenix, where I really started working on plant conservation and um, leading groups, both in conservation biology in desert areas and in ecological restoration. And um, yet I kept up the writing in the wee hours. I usually wake up between 3.30 and 5.30 in the morning when no one can call me. So I kept up my uh, writing habit. It, it was something that I, I just couldn't live without uh, maintaining that creative spirit through the writing. And I kept on thinking, most scientists I know are so in love with the world and so exuberant about our capacity to discover new things about the plant world. Why don't they write with that excitement? Mm. <laughs> Why are most scientific journals so god-awful, boring and stifled and static in their style that if you were an insomniac, a scientific journal would be the first thing that you should put by your bedside if you wanted to fall asleep. So my point was, I, I wanted to start teaching younger people how to write with exuberance about what they cared about and plants and their relationships where animals were sort of the gateway drug to doing that for me. And I, I hope that that excitement that I felt could be infectious for others. And I have to say I'm more, I have more pride about the writing and the field research that many of my former students have accomplished already in their lives and about my own. I just feel so grateful that I had a small part in setting them on their own trajectory because some of them, like my friend Sarah St. Antoine, a children's book writer, and Josh Tewksbury, a 
biodiversity conservationist and Colin Khoury, a, a seed conservationist, are the leaders in their field right now. And I just love their work and the way they do it. That's great. And so you're at the Desert Botanical Garden, and um, this, is, of course, is one of the, the great um, conservation epicenters for desert plants of our entire globe, not just of the Sonoran Desert there. But uh, this must deepen your own understanding and engagement with what is happening with conservation of um, desert plants, and, and I am guessing also uh, continues to deepen your understanding that it's not about just saving a species, but all of a community that works around any one species. That's right. And keep in mind that even while I was being hired by Desert Botanical Garden, three dear friends um, and I started Native Seed Search, one of the first grassroots right. seed conservation organizations. We we hosted the first uh, national meeting about heirloom seeds called Seed Bank Serving People Grassroots Seed Conservation with a community-based approach and then helped with other people uh, plan a national seed conference at Missouri Botanical Garden. and that put me in touch with kindred spirits all around the country. And there's nothing worse for your life than running into other people that are as inspired as you are about something like seeds and plants, because you feed on one another. Mm. You're not in competition, but their spirits buoy yours up and keep you moving. And you hope that your work does the same. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation today with Gary Nabhan, gardener, agricultural ecologist, an ethnobotanist, and an ecumenical Franciscan brother. Gary's work is dedicated to healing wounded landscapes and conserving healthy relationships. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Given the exact time of year that it is, and with this episode airing for the first time on Christmas Eve itself, in listening to Gary's life with land and plants and animals down in Patagonia, Arizona, I kept wanting to sing along with something like, One heirloom orchard, two greenhouses, 16 species of hummingbirds, 28 species of bats, 35 agaves, and a pomegranate and a prickly pear shrub. Okay, I can't sing, but you get my point. Gardeners are the coolest people. Merry, merry, merry to all of you in your garden from me in mine. Cheers and happy winter to you in the Northern Hemisphere. Happy summer to those of you in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with botanist and ecologist Gary Paul Nabhan. 
As we come back, he shares more behind the catalyst of his co-founding of Native Seed Search. After he learned and shared with his regional community more about an historic and desert-specific tepiary bean of the indigenous people of the Southwest, tribal friends asked Gary if he could help locate other ancestral seeds of the region, and one thing led to another from there. And so I teamed up with these three friends, first to start a a little seed bank project primarily for Native American farmers foundation called Meals for Millions Freedom from Hunger Foundation that did hunger projects on reservations. And I was in charge of a gardening project with them. But pretty soon we were getting so much demand for these rare seeds, not only from Native Americans, that we tried to figure out a way that we could offer them for sale to um, any home gardener in a way that allowed us to um, give uh, viable, freshly grown out vegetable seeds for free to any Native American family that wanted them. 30 years later, Native Seed Search still does that, and I live right above its 60-acre farm. And even though I haven't been on the board for years, it's its staff and the dozens of Native Americans that have been on its staff and uh, hundreds that have been interns or colleagues from different Native communities uh, are some of the warmest relationships I have with people that I've learned the most from and been humbled by their own gifts and and and, um, and compassion. So it became uh, one of the first nonprofits, along with Seed Savers Exchange, that began to uh, conserve and distribute rare vegetable seeds. I also joined the Seed Savers Exchange board. I think I was the, the first board member other than the couple, Diane and Kent Whaley, that started Seed Savers Exchange. So very early on, I was walking some kind of wayward path between botanical gardens, grassroots, seed activism, and nonprofits, and universities. And God knows how I didn't get fired from all three because (laughs) I was more interested in crosswalking than staying within the boundaries of one or the other. But there's an importance in that crosswalking. That's right. Uh, That's why I write so much about (laughs) cross-pollination. I really believe that uh, it keeps us from the deadliness of monocultures. Can you talk any more about the importance of seeds saved in the ways that you were being a seed activist? What is at the heart of that? Especially that you were doing this work in the 80s, and it is a continuing problem in our global seed world today. Well, that's right. And very early on, even though I was trained by some of the great plant explorers in the history of the United States. I felt that seeds shouldn't end up in seed banks away from the cultures and the habitats where they evolve, that they are symbiotic beings that need contact with humans. They need to be in human hands 
and they need planning every year rather than being locked up in a liquid nitrogen vault where they're not grown out except for one or two times a century. And so I really moved toward the in-situ conservation of seeds, supporting native farmers and other ethnic groups who wanted to maintain their own seed sovereignty rather than thinking that seed banks, even grassroots seed banks, were an end in themselves. And the only real work I do seed bank related now is with um, free seed libraries, like the uh, little book libraries that you see on uh, corners and neighborhoods all around the United States, and for that matter, all around the world now, that uh, we shouldn't patent seeds, we should give them away and share them because that's how they've been treated for 10,000 years. How long have you been on the current land that you uh, you tend now above the native seed search farm? I've been in Patagonia for 11 years now. And uh, within a month of getting here, I found out that some old friends had moved to Patagonia as well, including Ron Pulliam, who is a highest ranking ecologist in the Clinton administration. And so um, joining together with Ron's vision that I fully embraced, a number of us helped start uh, the nonprofit Borderlands Restoration Network, the um, limited profit, limited liability, green social venture called Borderlands Restoration that has a nursery here in town and uh, restoration implementation uh, microenterprise in a land trust called Wild uh, Life Corridors. And so even though I thought I was getting away from being on a lot of nonprofit boards <laughs> uh, by moving out of the city, I ended up in a place where there's nine different nonprofits and uh, social uh, entrepreneurial for-profits working on ecological restoration, horticulture, and uh, native plant conservation. So it put me back into the daily practice rather than uh, 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 administering programs at universities or botanical gardens. I was back into the thick of it, not only on our land, but in our own community. And Borderlands Restoration is in a town of only 800 people here in Patagonia, but over 200 people in our community have volunteered for it. So it's really part of the fabric of life here. It's not something that's only for the elite. And give us the the sort of premise uh, of the Borderlands Restoration and um, what you see as its defining characteristics. Well, we quickly notice that despite an extraordinarily high level of biodiversity of birds and plants right here in the Sky Islands of the Borderlands, we also had the worst grinding poverty with poverty rates twice the national average here in the border counties. And we said, why can't that biodiversity 
be used and conserved in ways that create jobs rather than depriving people of jobs. So within a very few years, we created 70 new jobs in this community of 800, both people working for the organization directly and running backhoes or doing the accounting or doing the uh, greenhouse building. And my wife and I started under this umbrella Borderlands Restoration, a youth program called Earth Care Youth Corps that has now had 140 uh, Hispanic American, Native American, and Anglo American high school students go through it working five hours a day in hands-on plant propagation, uh, reforestation, habitat restoration, water harvesting, and then taking an hour each day to read and write about those activities. And these 140-some kids get paid $15 an hour for five hours a day for five weeks of the summer. Many of them come back as uh, field crew bosses for the younger kids when they go off to college. And so it really uh, helps uh, bring generations together. They go out sometimes with their grandfathers who are ranchers and farmers to plant hedgerows or windbreaks or heal eroded uh, gullies on private lands here, in addition to working on Forest Service and National Park lands. And so in many ways, this, uh, these, this suite of nonprofits that you are involved with on the ground there in uh in Patagonia are kind of modeling this approach of integrating people and the restoration of place and the ecosystems of that place all at once. You're right. We call it community-based collaborative conservation because we wanted to heal not just the lands, but the differences in our community between Republican and Democrat or liberal and conservative or faith-based and science-based approaches to living in the borderlands. And so we get healed ourselves when we're down in a gully working with someone from a different faith, political party, race, or ethnicity because we begin to value their underlying talents and skills that I certainly don't have. Um, and we find out what common values bind us. And so a lot of the divisiveness in the American West and in this country overall seems to disappear when we're working together to heal the land with plants. And it's just so basic and fundamental that if you scratch the surface of many nonprofits all around their country, they're doing the same thing, that you can't talk someone out of divisiveness. But when you work together in the trenches, uh, something beyond words brings you together. And... Tell us a little bit about your own home and orchard there and its sort of role as, as 
personal and larger? Well, for better or worse, I collect different rare cultivated plants. Like a lot of kids of my generation collected baseball cards or records. And so I have about 120 different varieties of fruit and nut trees on our five acres, 35 different species of century plants planted in a contemplative garden uh, that I just finished up. That's sort of a permaculture design, but at the same time, it's a place where I go out and do my contemplative practice. And uh, two greenhouses full of uh, rare vegetables and, and uh, herbs and spices from arid lands all around the world. And I use the concept from uh, Moorish Spain of an almunia, a, a word that means a private experimental station where you're not trying to make money off what you grow, but you're trying to find out what grows best in your neighborhood which is hard to do now that climate change is accelerating so rapidly. But then you give away the keepers, the best, most optimal plants for your microhabitat to other people that live nearby you. And so you're a philanthropist, not with money, but with plants. You give away the best of what you have so that others, perhaps with a greener thumb than yours can make a meal or a living off of them. And so in this, I am seeing both your grandfather walking by your side and St. Francis there also. You know, there's a beautiful Mexican icon of San Isidro, the mm. uh, saint of the, the plow as a saint walking beside a poor man uh, who's uh, using draft horses to plow a field. And I think you're right, a lot of times I feel that Papa John Nabhan, my Lebanese grandfather, or Jesus of Nazareth, or St. Francis, or Buddha are walking next to me because I've been on such a wayward path all my life. It, it's never on the pavement. It's never on the superhighway that uh, sometimes they have to help me find my way in the dark. And I just never feel alone. Describe some of those uh, fruits and nuts that you have cultivated over this 11 years and that have gone on to populate other people's gardens in your area. Yeah, well, I have 35 kinds of pomegranates from all over the world. Wow. In our orchard, and I love giving away the the cuttings and the fruit. We have a canning kitchen on our place where I make these um, Arab derived uh, uh, probiotic drinks called shrubs that are sort of a vinegar based or or fermented fruit based uh, syrup that you add to uh, ice and mixed drinks or or drink for its own deliciousness. And so from the orchard to the canning kitchen, I just feel that whether it's giving away the drinks or giving away the cuttings, it creates a kind of cur currency among neighbors and friends and other enthusiasts 
that is a, a currency of generosity rather than greed, that what plants allow us to do is share in an unfettered way the essence of life. That's what a seed is. That's what a, a cutting is or a propagule is. It's the essence of life that's going to go on long after we die. And I don't want to brag about any particular variety or species that I brought back because no single person ever saves anything. It takes a village. There's no single plant cultivated or wild that I've saved from extinction. It's always been in a network of other people that are just as uh, passionate about these plants, their flavors and fragrances and beauty as I am. So you can never do that work alone. Your most recent book, uh, which is coming out shortly, weaves together uh, the theme of faith and this um, belief that you hold, and I think you have seen borne out in in all of your endeavors, that we are not going to solve the many problems of our world through just the science of plants or through the culture of, of plants people or humans trying to help on a kind of cultural experimentation level, um, but that between art and science, there is this other element of faith and the faith keepers, you call them, as being really important to bridging um, some of our greatest divides right now. Could you talk a little bit about that, especially as it relates to these concepts of integrating our caring for land and our caring for food and our caring for humans? Well, thank you for that wonderful question and prompt. You know, I have to say that I'm a person that has a lot of disabilities, um, both uh, some that I was born with and some that I've acquired through some horrendous accidents. I've had four concussions within the last few years. And that kind of identity loss uh, that you feel when you're suffering from traumatic brain injury makes you question things at a deeper level. And I realized that I've never really believed that we can get anywhere alone with materialistic solutions, that there's no quick technological fix to our agricultural and food security problems, that it's as much to do with our values as it is with our technical expertise, that we can't solve hunger alone by science or by faith. We need both of those ways of looking at the world. And the non-dualistic thinking that many Buddhists and Christian contemplatives share with many indigenous people, that we don't have to compete for an answer between science and faith, but find something where we draw the best instincts and capabilities of ourselves and others around us towards lasting solutions for the people most in need on this planet is where I stand now. I, I'm not a great scientist or a great 
horticulturalist or a great writer, but what I can do is remind people that we need talented companions in all those fields to make this world work and to save the remaining riches of the natural world that are all around us that are quickly disappearing. And we have to give up our ego and just embrace humbly what special gifts we may have that can, can contribute to that uh, stone soup, that crazy stew of skills, talents, aspirations, and prayers that ultimately feed and nourish all of us. Is there anything else you would like to add about the importance of our relationship to plants at this time? Well, I've come to realize that many of the plants I've always loved are not really of the plant kingdom alone. They're what the great evolutionary ecologist Lynn Margolis calls holobionts, that they, they function in terms of the ways that they heal ourselves and the way that they heal the land by their presence in restoration plots because of the microbes that they're associated with, because of their relationships with pollinators and seed dispersers, and that this word holobiont means that almost all of them are more than just the genes in a plant, but the genes of all these microbes that are in and on their leaves and roots. And the same is true with us. So we have 10,000 times more cells in and on us than the cells of our human genome. So even during the worst stages of the pandemic, none of us are alone. We have to give up thinking that our ego governs this little biotic community that our bodies harbor and that we are embraced and embracing all kinds of life forms in every breath we take, in every meal we consume, and of everything that flows out of our bodies. <laughs> and so I just don't feel alone in the world. I don't feel any fear of dying because I know I'll just be rolled downhill onto the native seed search farm and be composted and that uh, life will go on with some of my cells in it. And I'm not asking for immortality. I'm just asking to keep the food chain moving. Thank you very much for being a guest uh, on the program with me. It has been an honor to speak with you. What a delight to talk to you, and what a delight that you have such a committed group of listeners who share many of these same values with the two of us. Thanks again. Gary Paul Nabhan is a gardener an agricultural ecologist, an ethnobotanist, and an ecumenical Franciscan brother based in Patagonia, Arizona, south of Tucson. He works out of a lab at the University of Arizona's Desert Laboratory on Tuomac Hill in Tucson. 
He is the author of a host of books covering a diversity of botany-based topics, from pollinators to seed to food policy to love letters to his favorite landscapes. My conversation with Gary went on longer than I was able to contain in our on-air piece. To hear the full-length version, make sure to check out this week's podcast episode of Cultivating Place, which you can find at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again next week when we end out our calendar year in conversation with gardener Kelly Matsushita Seng of Brave New Seed of the UC Santa Cruz Center for Agroecology and of Second Generation Seed, stewarding seeds and foods of the Asian diaspora. It is a good seeding on the cusp of the new year. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society and the American Horticultural Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're grateful for tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.